So much important information in this edition of the Alan Carter Program podcast, and you don't even need a special syringe to get at it like the vaccine. Sylvia Jones, Ontario's Solicitor General, answers my questions about whether new legislation to fight sex trafficking gives police too much power. It is a must-listen interview. And we have details from retired General Hillier on the vaccine rollout in Ontario. When will you be able to get the shot? Plus, Dr. Dean Andon on whether or not we're wasting money on hygiene theater. Let's get to it. Well, 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 big vaccine news here today. Absolutely. All this stuff is great. We got dates. We have dates, ladies and gentlemen. Dates. We know information about when you... You personally might be able to get a vaccine. We'll soon have a portal, a portal, a service desk. Oh, my goodness. Retired General Rick Hillier with a press conference this morning. And let me tell you, I don't I'm not certain that the retired general actually ever breathes in. The, the press conference he gave today began with a soliloquy that I think ran about 20 minutes, and at no point do I think he ever took a breath. And he talks at the clip of a Gatling gun. So I'm going to break it down for you. This is really key information that you need to know for you and your loved ones, and I'm going to tell you about that. And I'm also going to tell you about what the opposition reaction has been. It is underway right now. Uh, words like botched unacceptable, things like that. Shiba Siddiqui looking into that part of the story, and we'll try and get to uh, Shiba and some of that reaction from the opposition in just a second. So much to get through here. I'm going to take you through uh, what the province is saying and look at whether that criticism is warranted. But coming up later in the hour, my interview with Ontario Solicitor General Sylvia Jones. You know, anti-trafficking legislation has been introduced in the province of Ontario this week, and in it, it includes a provision for police to request details from hotel registries about the people who are staying in the rooms. Now, sex trafficking obviously is a growing problem. But are we giving police too much power? Is that a good idea? How are we balancing the privacy concerns with expansion of police powers? Here's part of what the Solicitor General told me when I pressed the point in our interview. I think it's worth um, having that little extra tool to uh, give to the police and investigations. That is Solicitor General Sylvia Jones. This is a must Listen interview, folks, and it is coming up later in this hour. Plus, hygiene theater. A year later, guys in hazmat suits are still wanding streetcars. Why? Why? Surface transmission apparently is not an, not an issue. Don't we know that by now? Dr. Ray Watt Dionandon from the U of A, never holds back, U, University of Ottawa, pardon me, never holds back, and he joins me in our next segment. But let's begin with the begin. Oh, God, I'm giddy with glee. woo Get out your pen and get ready to take some notes on the vaccine rollout because the general, the general, he doesn't, he brooks, he brooks no uh, dissatisfaction. You cannot, do not interrupt him. Just here we go, the Gatling gun with the information on the vaccine rollout. So starting the third week of March, it was 80 euros and plus. Starting the 15th of April, it will be 75 years old and plus. Starting the 1st of May, it will be 70 years old and plus. And starting the 1st of June, it will be 65 years old and plus. 
and it will go down further from there. And so those are the blocks that we're working for. All right, now let me help you. Let me help you with that if it went past a little quickly. Uh, the online booking system and service desk. This is the portal. This is the whole thing about what the province is going to do in terms of its rollout and the information that you need about when it is going to be available to you. That becomes available March 15th. And as of March 15th, people in the 80 and older age range can access it or those acting for them can access it and book them an appointment to get a vaccine shot. Then, adults age 75 and older, April 15th. 70 and older, on May 1st. Now, essential workers will begin getting their shots in May. 65 and older will be vaccinated beginning June 1st. And vaccinations in populations considered high risk, including indigenous adults, will continue during that phase. So, a little bit of a, a breakdown there. I, I know likely you maybe say, Alan, I, I'm not in those age groups. Uh, there are I have many, many questions. And in many ways, the information that we got from, doc, from the retired general today is really just an outline. There are going to be more questions than answers. And I think... I think we can all appreciate that we're not going to get all the answers right now. If you're in my age group, by the way, you know, if you're, well, if you feel 27, but possibly are older, I, I'm, it doesn't surprise me that I'm nowhere in here. I am nowhere in here, and nor should I be anywhere in here. Now, for some perspective here, this is a tweet from Jackson Prosco, who is our Global National Washington bureau chief. Now, for comparison, because uh, Jackson was paying attention to the retired general here in Ontario, here is his uh, tweet from Jackson Prosco. For, for comparison, here in Washington, vaccinations for essential workers in grocery stores and manufacturing begin next week. They have effectively finished the 65-plus age group. Let that sink in for just one moment. In Washington, they're done. 65 plus. Here in Ontario, we begin 65 plus June 1st. Now, remember the central promise of the federal government? Because you may be, like you might think to yourself, well, now that does not sound good. And that's clearly not the fault of the provincial government. That is all about procurement at the federal level. And remember the central promise from Justin Trudeau. The central promise is that anyone in this country who wants to have a vaccine will be able to get one by September. So, retired General Hillier, can Ontario promise that same thing? I'd love to say, yeah, you know, by Labor Day weekend, we're going to have every single person in Ontario who is eligible and who wants a vaccine to have one. Uh, I'm a little bit reluctant to do that because it depends on the arrival of those vaccines. I say this, if the vaccines arrive and the numbers required... We'll get them into the arms of the people of Ontario. Okay, so it's all up to the feds. Possible, it didn't say no, they certainly did not say yes. Vaccine dependent. The general also saying, the retired general also saying, he does take the federal government at their world, word 
in terms of procurement and saying that there will be no interruptions in supply. We have a steady supply coming on. That way, that way we're pushing back the second dose now. We're no longer reserving second doses, that sort of thing. So when it comes to be your turn, for example, if you are in any of those age cohorts that I just mentioned, you may have uh, really serious questions. Perhaps you have a, a loved one, a, a parent who is in one of those age groups, you would be acting on their behalf. When it comes to be their turn or your turn, where will you get it? You're going to get it close to where you live. In your postal code, when you go on to reserve a vaccination appointment, your postal code will bring up the the vaccination clinics that will be closest to your address, and then you will be able to reserve in them and go to it, whether it's a shopper's drug mark in Orleans, Ontario, or whether it's a drive-through vaccination clinic clinic at Canada's uh, play uh, Canada's Wonderland later on in the spring when the weather improves a bit, or whether it's a hockey rink, you know, in 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 York region, uh, the Ray Twenty uh, Center, or whether it's other places, the ones closest to you will be the ones brought up that you will be able to reserve an appointment, and so you will get your vaccination close to where you live. And when you make the first appointment, you will make a second appointment to get the second needle uh, into your arm and to get the immunization program complete. So, ladies and gentlemen, there it is, as as clearly as we can lay it out. That is retired General Rick Hillier, who is in charge of the vaccination rollout program in the province of Ontario. You will get the vaccine close to where you live, depending on your postal code. So that, and that gives you a sense, and he listed there a couple of things that we might see. For example, you may be at Canada's Wonderland. <laughs> you, you instead of being in line uh, for the behemoth, you may be in line for a jab in the arm. My son would say, "This is the worst. This is a needle. This is the worst trip to Canada's Wonderland ever." But obviously, in these days and days, these this day and age, it would be a pretty great trip to Canada's Wonderland to be able to get a vaccine. Now, more on where you'll actually be able to get it here from the uh, retired general. And here is some bonus material that you're going to get here on the Alan Carter program that you're not going to get anywhere else because here we have uh, retired General Hillier telling a joke. It'll be either a mass vaccination clinic, it'll either be in a pharmacy, or it potentially would be in a, a mini mass vaccination clinic, if I could call it that, a mini-me perhaps, uh, where <laughs> primary care professionals would come together create a, a, a smaller mass vaccination clinic, and then be able to call their patients and others into that. A mini-me. <laughs> I'm, here all day. I'm here all day for the general telling jokes. I really, I really am. But it, there was still key information in there, which is we may not only have mass vaccination, but many mass vaccination sites where we have uh, groupings of healthcare professionals. But still, so many questions. Uh, Shiba Siddiqui, uh, you with us, Shiba? Shiba Siddiqui is I'm my here. producer. I'm here. She, can you hear me? I can. Thank you so much. I, I know you've been uh, looking into what Andrea Horvath and the other members of the opposition, I know they've been coming up. We do, they do scrums after question period, and I know that uh, Andrea was talking recently and, and you have something from what she was saying? We do. We have a clip ready with her speaking on this topic. Yep. And you're going to be blown away by it. 
There's no doubt. This rollout is being botched by the Ford government, uh, as was, you know, the, the, the long-term care iron ring. Uh, as has been every move when it comes to the uh, dealing with this virus, this government has, has really botched the entire COVID-19 response. And as a result, people suffered. Lives were lost. Botched. Sheba, I just wonder what your perspective is when, when you when you hear those dates and we got dates and we got a portal and all of that. Does that, that give you hope? It absolutely gives me hope. The first people I thought of were my parents. I, and I am worried, obviously, it seems, it seems too good to be true. It seems like it's going to go flawlessly, which, I mean, nothing has gone flawlessly since this pandemic has began. But I am very excited and hopeful for my parents. Now, what, part of the concern is that, especially in certain age groups, um, they might have some difficulty accessing things like a service center or a port, something like a portal. Is that a concern for you? Absolutely. My parents are not computer literate at all. I will have to do that for them. So I'm going to have to read up on this, prepare myself, and I, it seems like things are really going to be backlogged. That's my concern, that it's going to be... Um, a large waste of time in a lot of ways because I'll just have to keep pressing refresh or redial or whatever it is I'll have to do. I'm going to have to prepare myself for that and take out some time to get ready to get their names on that list. I, I have one more bit from the retired general here that I want to play for you before we take a quick break. And uh, uh, Raywad Dionandon will join me to talk about hygiene theater. This is uh, the general talking about what you will have to be doing, which is, or depending on what age group, when you go on, uh, here's a warning from the general uh, to anybody who thinks that they might be able to go to the call center on March the 15th if they're not the correct age. This is number five, March. We have it almost ready. We're, we're testing it to, making sure, to make sure that it works. And, and, and 15 March works for us to have it up and running. I would just stress again, when it goes live on 15 March, unless you're 80 years old or older, unless you're an agent or a family member acting for somebody who's in that category to get an appointment, Stay off the online reservation system, please, and stay off the customer service desk call center. You have been warned, Sheba. I hope people listen to that. (laughs) Don't mess with Rick Hillier. He will come (laughs) to your house. (laughs) All right. Thank you, Sheba. Thanks so much. Are we still wasting time and money on hygiene theater? You know what hygiene theater is when we, you know, do all kinds of fancy things, spray things down with all kinds of disinfectants, and why do we do it? Do we do it because the evidence shows we're actually protecting ourselves against the spread of the virus, or are we doing it because it's visible and we see it all and it makes us somehow feel better? For example, I was recently walking in my neighborhood and I saw... Some guys in hazmat suits, full white suits with respirator on, wanding down a streetcar, which had stopped at a roundabout. And I wondered, is that required? What do we know about the virus and how it spreads? Is that something that makes sense? Dr. Raywat Dionandin is an epidemiologist and a professor at the University of Ottawa, and he is about to set me straight. Welcome, Doc. Thank you. So, the guys in hazmat suits wanding stuff down, does that make sense? Uh, well, it doesn't hurt. That's the first thing. And it's, it, is it our best, 
biggest buck, sorry, biggest bang for a buck. Clearly not. It's not a biggest bang for a buck. So there are different ways that viruses uh, travel and affect people. Number one is through direct physical contact, sometimes through sexual contact and things like that. Number two, sometimes through vectors uh, like mosquitoes. Uh, so malaria spreads that way. Number three, there's the fecal oral route, which is exactly what it sounds like. <laughs> to get into oh, details, goodness yeah. gracious, but, it's lunchtime, Doc. I okay. know. Then there's like, Thanks. you know, droplet transmission, which is how we think COVID mostly is transmitted. So bits of fluid are coughed up from your lungs or exhaled, and they land within two meters of your body. And if it lands on someone's face and gets them their eyes or their nose, that's how they get infected, which is why we have the two-meter rule. Then there's aerosol transmission, which is we think COVID is probably um, uh, aerosolized as well, where particles flow to the air longer, hours, sometimes days. And then there's fomite transmission. That's when you leave a little something on a surface, like a doorknob, someone else touches that doorknob, touches their face, and they get infected that way. Early on, we thought COVID might be a fomite transmitted disease. And it probably is to a very small extent, but it really isn't noticeably. So we over-exaggerated the extent to which surface transmission is a thing, and we under-exaggerated how much it's an aerosolized disease. So we really should focus more on the fact that it floats around in the air and less on the fact that it may land on surfaces. And I appreciate that the science has changed on these things, and so maybe a year ago, you know, what we talked about is hygiene theater. It might be just simply because we didn't have the conclusive evidence that we have now. But I'll tell you another story, Doc, that I've had happen recently to me is I went to a, a grocery store and, you know, of course, you're doing the distancing and you're waiting. And I go to put my groceries on the on the conveyor belt and the cashier is like, well, hold on a second here. Uh, wait, because I need to spray down this conveyor belt. Now, the theory here would be that someone who was asymptomatic had been in the store and the lineup in front of me had bought some Fruit Loops, perhaps, put those down, then that gets onto somehow on the conveyor belt and it goes around and then somehow gets onto my granola and I take it home and I get COVID. That doesn't seem to make any sense, Doc. No, it's theoretically possible, but it assumes that there's a 100% probability of the asymptomatic person leaving a bit of something behind, 100% probability of that thing lasting on the surface, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. That's not the way this works. The probabilities diminish with every level of transmission. So the chances of that actually happening are, in my opinion, vanishingly small and not worthy of conversation, really. But we go through this anyway. And in my household, I'm, I'm married to a family doctor. She insists that we, we clean our groceries still. Really? And I get it. Yeah, still? I'm being ultra careful. And I understand it. And, you know, I don't think it's needed. But I will say this. The common cold and the flu probably are well transmitted via fomites. Right? And so you may not be protecting yourself against COVID, but you are protecting yourself against the common cold. There's a reason that the cold is so rare right now. Is right. People are washing their hands. It's not just about keeping distance. They're washing their hands. So if the goal here is to control COVID, then we're not getting the biggest bang for a buck by focusing on deep cleaning. We should be focusing on the distancing, the mask wearing, and controlling air quality through ventilation. But if the goal is a longer, multi-year strategy for controlling respiratory diseases like the flu and the cold, then getting into the habit of cleaning surfaces is not a bad idea. But spraying down counters all the time between customers, mm. that's a bit over the top. Hmm. 
That is fascinating. I love the fact that you're you're having within your household the same discussion <laughs> that everyone else is, and it doesn't doesn't matter, uh, you know, what your credentials are. Oh, it's a constant source of stress here. <laughs> <laughs> Dr. Raywa, thank you so much for coming on today. Thank you again. Thank you. That is Dr. Raywat Dionandin, who is an epidemiologist and a professor at the University of Ottawa, talking about hygiene theater. And what did you take away from that? It is not the best bang for our buck. And so when you look at the hazmat suit guy in the TTC, when you look at the guy wanding down the GO train, who do you think is paying for that? That's you and me, folks. (laughs) let's not kid ourselves. It's our kids. They're paying for it. They're going to pick up the tab for all of this theater to make us feel better. Ontario has introduced new legislation detailing its further commitment to fight human trafficking in the province of Ontario. The premier of this province has called this province a hub for human trafficking and sex trafficking. A study by the Centre to End Human Trafficking has found that sex traffickers use a network of corridors, including the 401, to maximize profit and avoid police detection. The 401 is one of the most prevalent and well-known human trafficking corridors in the country, says the agency's executive director. That quote from the London Free Press. And as I mentioned, Ontario has a $307 million Human trafficking strategy, and earlier this week, new legislative changes were introduced at Queen's Park. And to talk about it, I'm pleased to welcome to the program the Solicitor General for the province of Ontario, Sylvia Jones. Welcome. Good to be here. Thank you, Alan. One of the things that is in the changes that you have proposed is providing law enforcement with more tools. And one of the things that I think jumped out to a lot of people was Uh, And I read this from your press release, from the press release from the province, clarifying how and when police services can access information from hotel guest registries. Can you tell me how you balance privacy concerns with an enhancement of police powers? Absolutely. You know, this is all about um, speed and quick intervention. Um, When the average age of recruitment is 13 years old for our young people, uh, when police suspect that there is human trafficking activity happening in a hotel or motel or um, or or accommodation, short-term accommodation, we need to be able to quickly find out who is registered in that room. Uh, This is not about... um, anything other than allowing those investigations to get the name and to be able to follow up with uh, very quick investigations. What kind of parameters would police require to be able to access a name from a hotel registry? I'm, I just, again, I'm thinking of privacy concerns for regular citizens who might be worried about such a thing. Well, you know, part of our training piece is going to uh, involve and does involve um, Allowing police officers uh, to know the signs. Uh, what does what does human trafficking look like? Um, I have to give a shout out to the hotel and motel associations who are already training their staff on 
what human trafficking looks like so that they are additional eyes on the ground and can be aware of what is happening within uh, their uh, businesses. So, as I said, it's part of an investigation. Uh, There would have to be due diligence in terms of uh, investigative peace occurs first and only then would they be able to ask for and receive without a warrant uh, who is actually registered to that hotel room or um, short-term rental. In my preamble I quoted the Center to End Human Trafficking. That organization also responded to the legislation that you had introduced, you introduced this week uh, and called it, the quote being The legislation falls short of providing substantive long-term solutions where they are needed most. The organization calling for more multi-jurisdictional or inter-jurisdictional police cooperation. I wonder if you can respond to that. Absolutely. And it's a valid point in terms of uh, because human traffickers tend to move their victims around uh, up and down the 401 corridor, as you highlighted. Uh, We need to be able to work uh, collaboratively, not just across Ontario. And we've done that with an additional 23 officers uh, in the OPP sexual exploitation unit, but also joint investigations. And I I have to say that uh, we've been doing that for uh, the last year, and we've already had some successes with joint operations between municipal police services services and the OPP, because when uh, it gets hot in a particular community, they do move the the victims around. And we absolutely have to uh, empower the police officers and the agencies to work together so that they can find and track those uh, traffickers. There has been some excellent reporting on this recently. I I highlight some reporting in the Globe and Mail in the last couple of days. Uh, pointing out the the routes that uh, human traffickers and sexual traffickers will often use, and often using uh, more remote routes where they believe they can get away without being um, detected. How do you ensure that police in those northern regions have the kind of resources and, as you mentioned, the kind of training to be able to spot a problem? Yeah, it's, a, it's an excellent point. So that is part of why we have expanded the Child Exploitation Unit with the OPP, because it would be, frankly, unrealistic for some of the smaller services to have that kind of a very in-depth investigative uh, personnel um, through the Ontario Police College. All cadets receive human trafficking sessions, um, and they are receiving actual identification in terms of recognizing victims of human trafficking and how to respond to them. Uh, You know, I think it's really uh, critical that part of this legislation, well, all of this legislation, was driven by talking directly to survivors, to investigators who are working in the field, as well as organizations who are assisting uh, victims. In an ideal world, Alan, I would rather have everyone raising awareness of the issue and having less victims um, being uh, recruited because, as you can imagine, uh, these are very challenging um, crimes to have survivors supported afterwards. So dealing with it at the beginning, having our young people, having our parents uh, understand what the signs are so that less young people are recruited is ultimately the uh, goal. I'm speaking with Sylvia Jones, who is Ontario's Solicitor General, and I will end where I began 
uh, solicitor, and, and that is with privacy concerns. Have you heard from civil liberties groups? Uh, have there been any uh, questions raised about uh, the expansion of these police powers? Not at this point, and, and I will uh, again reinforce, when we are dealing with the average age of recruitment of 13 years old, I really think that speed has to be a, a very important consideration. And uh, again, we're talking about who is registered to that hotel room, who is registered to that um, Airbnb. Uh, so, uh, you know, a name that allows investigators to quickly um, follow up and confirm that a trafficking is occurring and helping that victim and and getting that victim out of that situation or uh, moving on to different uh, other investigations. I think, I think it's worth um, having that little extra tool to uh, give to the police and investigations. Sylvia Jones, thank you so much for your time today. All right. Stay well. That is Ontario's Solicitor General, Sylvia Jones. So what did you hear there, especially at the end as we came back to that central question that I began my interview with, which is, are we giving too much power to police? I think that in the last year or so, we have had a pretty serious reckoning with police powers. Now, I want to be absolutely crystal clear absolutely crystal clear if you will listen to this radio program and thank you if you do you know that human trafficking and sex trafficking is something that I am deeply concerned about and we all should be and we need to combat it and the police do need tools to combat it my question here and I don't think I don't think we came away with a clear answer. The question is, are we giving police too much power? Yes, there are checks and balances. And yes, it is better that the hotel association and hotel operators have a clearer understanding what their obligations are under the law. You will forgive me if what I bring to the table is some suspicion, is some questions about whether or not when we give police more power, we have the kind of protections for privacy that we absolutely must have in a free and open society. And to be able to balance those two things between the protection of our young people, which is absolutely key, and the protection of our privacies, that is a very, very fine line to walk. The reaction is coming in fast and furious to Ontario's vaccination rollout plan. I gave you the details at the beginning of the program, but I will give them to you one more time again, and you'll get them in the news as well. And here is the basics on the rollout. An online booking system and service desk will become available in the province as of March 15th. And as of March 15th, people who are 80 or older can book for a vaccine shot or perhaps somebody who is acting for uh, an elderly person, you know, someone who doesn't necessarily have online experience or whatever, you, you can book on their behalf. Then on April 15th, it moves to adults aged 75 and older, May the 1st, 70 older, June the 1st, 65 and 
older. That is the podcast for today. Don't forget the Alan Carter program, weekdays starting at noon.